0: This podcast is produced by The Brand Is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast.
1: If you can't be critical and withdraw yourself from your own own comfort zones, then I, as far as I'm concerned, you can't be a decent journalist.
0: Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu, I'm Mungi. This week, my guest is the South African journalist and author, John Allen. In this episode, we discuss his career in South Africa, as well as the U.S. and the U.K. He shares his experience being a journalist during apartheid, and also what being the Director of Media Relations and Communications for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission entailed. He was very honest about not knowing what sustained him in tough moments and provided perspective on the lack of economic liberation in South Africa today. As a true South African, his greatest hope for humanity is that the concept of Ubuntu will take hold and spread globally. And you won't be surprised to know that I hope for the same. Here's our conversation. Welcome John Allen to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast.
1: Well, hello, Mungi and Gamani. It's lovely to speak to you.
0: Thank you. And I'm excited and I'm gonna just jump in and, and ask you my first question. And actually my mom helped me come up with it and it's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I want to ask you, what's missing from your resume?
1: I think from anybody's resume, what's missing is people's human qualities. So for example, if you look at uh, uh, my professional life, which my resume is all about, um, it leaves out the fact that for me, relationships are really important. Um, that uh, uh, you, know, you can go through life, you can achieve a lot, and you can be, you know, well regarded and and uh, uh, for for what you've achieved. But you can be a lousy person. And uh, if if I've got a choice of being prominent and a lousy person, or not so prominent and regarded as a person who is a decent human being, then I think I'd, I think I'd, I'd certainly like to say that I'd prefer to be the latter.
0: I, I would as well. Also, you know, speaking right at the bat about how relationships are important to you, that that's so Ubuntu of you. Just just have to say that.
1: Well <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean it's it's fun to work together. You know, at the moment I, I work with in an office of about a dozen to fifteen people, all younger than myself. In fact I've formally sort of stepped down and uh had younger people take over the jobs that I was doing.
0: Yeah. And, and speaking of your work, you know, you became a journalist at 18, right out of school. And so I wonder if you always knew, like, was it always going to be journalism? Or how did you, how did you sort of fall into journalism?
1: No, I, I actually was meant to go to university to study history. And um, I, I did British A-levels in history, and geography and English. And at school, my history teacher said, she said she, sh- she thought I could be a good historian if I wasn't so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I really, I think I, I mean, I would have loved to do it. Um, but uh, what happened is that probably a year before I left school, I really had itchy feet. And I spent most of my holidays, my school holidays, hitchhiking around Southern Africa, uh, Zimbabwe, Namibia, all over South Africa. And I was restless. Um, and I I realized that if I went to university then uh, I would probably not settle down to it and I'd just probably uh, you know waste my parents money frankly and so I turned to journalism just as an option and I didn't necessarily think I was going to be there long I thought I might be in journalism for a year or two and then I'd go to university when the when the travel bug had, 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 had gone down a bit um, but uh, when I got into a newspaper, I had to sign a, I had to go on a, a six-month training course and sign a contract for two years after that. And by the time all of that was over, I was, I, I was thoroughly immersed in journalism and married as well. So I never went to university.
0: <laughs> but then you were a journalist during apartheid in South Africa. And so what was your experience like as a journalist in that time?
1: Well, it turned me into the person I became. I mean, the enormous value of journalism as a white journalist under apartheid is that it gave you, uh, if, if, as, as long as you took the opportunity, it gave you access to communities that most white South Africans didn't have access to. You know, black South Africans knew white South Africans very well. They were their bosses and their parents' bosses and, uh, um, uh, and, 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 and whites ruled their lives in a way. And um you know, and they spoke their minds to whites at risk because they might lose their job or become unpopular um, whereas white South Africans didn't know black South Africans at all ninety nine percent of cases, it was a master servant relationship. South Africa, even today it's not as bad as it was, but even today it's kind of islands of middle class privilege amid the sea of poverty and um and journalism enabled me to escape those islands of middle-class privilege, even if it was only for trips for work, and get to know the real South Africa. And so actually, uh, not having a degree has you know, been a little limiting to some about my decisions. But in terms of life experience, I've never regretted it. It's, it's made me what I am, and it's given me all sorts of fantastic opportunities. And um, so I've loved it.
0: Yeah, and so then, you know, obviously people have their critiques of media and journalism and whatnot, but sort of what, what do you think, or what are the problems that you see with journalism today?
1: I, it well, it depends on what country you're in. Yeah. Overall, I've been exposed to British journalism a lot, and I've been uh, exposed to American journalism uh, uh, a lot as well from when I lived in the States. I must say I, I like the focus in American journalism, on reporting the facts, on the legwork, if you like, you know, on getting out and getting onto the ground, and um, I, you know, there's no objectivity, you know, because we're all products of of our backgrounds and right. our pasts. So there's a, it's it's a, you know, it's 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 a fallacy to say there's objectivity in journalism, but. To get out on the ground and mix with people and listen to other people and get a story from different sides that's the most important thing is to go out and if there's a dispute there may be two sides to an issue there may be four sides to an issue try to immerse yourself in the sides of each of those people and reflect their views in your in your in your, in your reporting so uh, you know, British uh, uh, broadsheet high quality journalism um, is uh, the, the the reporting can be Quite opinionated. I mean, I quite enjoy it, but but I, I in a way, you know, I like that sort of old American distinction between the op-ed page, or what used to be called the op-ed page, and um, uh, and reporting. Uh, so when you know when you know when people do the legwork, get out into the ground, and go and report, and go beyond their natural boundaries, that for me is what journalism should be. Its weaknesses are when it's not that, when people go in with preconceived ideas. Um, you know, a lot of what I'm seeing, some of the American media do is not journalism at all. It's it's just a, a, a television version of um, you know uh, inflaming popular prejudices. Um,
0: yes, yes, we all know Fox News is not journalism. Yeah, you
1: know, it's it's um, that's not for, for me. That's not journalism. I mean, it may you know people may they may pass as journalism for them. And in South Africa, we have similar kind of issues. Um, uh, I mean, we have a real crisis, I think, in, in, for journalists and in society in the way that the most extreme, radical, emotionally uh, driving opinions inflame social media. The more the strongly held opinion attracts you and you say, wow, right on, or alternatively, if it's against you, you, you know, you get mad with it and it inflames you. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't add to anybody's sum of knowledge. It doesn't add any new perspectives to you. And how can you solve a problem in the world if you don't look at it from different perspectives?
0: Yeah. And do you think? I imagine it has. But you know, how has society's sort of perception of journalism changed? Or or do you think that there are still huge misconceptions about the work you do and the work that other journalists do in society?
1: It's it's strange. People express a lot of uh, you know misconceptions and you know p- prejudiced judgments about journalists and but extraordinarily the very comments they make are a consequence of them having listened to journalists um <laughs> you know when i was on a newspaper 20 30 years ago we used to say you wouldn't change people's minds uh you wouldn't change p- people's basic outlooks but you set the agenda you you provided the stuff which they would discuss and debate and talk about. You know, I, I like journalism as an essential function of a democratic society. Um, if you if you're going to vote in a democracy, you need to know what the issues are and you need to hear different views, and then you need to cast your vote based on what you hear. And if the journalist, if a journalist is doing uh, her or his job properly, they're actually giving people information on which they can make decisions about their lives, whether it's the movie you go to see that night. Because you look up a review of a movie or whether it's who you vote for in your local you know in your local constituency in your local government or whether you're voting for the president you're making you know you're making decisions based on on being well informed and you depend on journalism for that
0: yeah i I feel like though you know having been in the u s last year the the journalism just didn't go like that that extra step it seems like the the questions for those on the right sort of stop short of being like, okay, what you've said is actually racist. Instead of us saying, what do you mean by this? What you said has been historically said by other people to be a racist thing. Like why, you know, it's the the inability to sort of like bring that out and like think of facts and history as what they are. Um, and so that's, I guess, sort of... Not necessarily a struggle. I think journalism is important, but that sometimes I'll watch, you know A a news show and I'm like why couldn't we just ask that question? That it was just on the tip of your tongue and you just refuse to ask this of this person And I don't know if that has to do with sort of the inner workings of politics in the US with the media and you know Whatever is happening Mm -hmm. in the back room, but it's it's just always interesting to think about
1: Yeah, I if you can't be critical and withdraw yourself from your own, you know, from your own comfort zones, then I, as far as I'm concerned, you can't be a decent journalist. And um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I, and you know, American journalism, although I've said I, I admire a lot of it, it's had its real faults. You know, I I lived in New York on September 11. When was it? 2001. Uh, I lived across the river in Jersey City and I came out of a PATH train through the World Trade Center and I heard a screaming sound and that was the first plane going into the North Tower. Um, So I was kind of right in the middle of it and what I found in the weeks and months afterwards that living in uh, an autocratic society where you had limited um, uh, human rights, um, it actually kind of prepared you for what was going to happen Uh, during the Bush years in the United States. So, um, I remember sitting in my office, I was Director of Communications in a church in downtown Manhattan, Trinity Church, and I was sitting in my office watching live uh, Colin Powell on television speaking to the UN Security Council, I think it was the Security Council, motivating the case for war against Iraq. And it didn't convince me at all. You know, because he, uh, as far as I could see, he didn't lie. But the, you know, but the facts he was setting out and the way in which he was putting the case and the nature of the facts uh, were such that um, it kind of looked, looked like an apartheid-era politician. I hate to say that about Colin Powell because I think he's a decent man. <laughs> but, um, you know, in South Africa, when the Minister of Defence went into Parliament, if you passed his words, if you, looked, if you read between the lines, you knew that they were torturing and killing people. And they were death squads. Yes. You know, he didn't use those words. But if you, but afterwards, if you looked at those lines, you'd say, no, it was concealed within those words. Well, it was the opposite with Colin Powell. I didn't, I didn't hear anything in those words which justified them going to war. Yet most of the American media did. Uh, you know, we had a lot of friends in the states who left in the late seventies and early eighties. White South Africans who would left South Africa. Uh, because they wouldn't have their sons serving in an apartheid military. You know, we had forced military conscription for white men here. Uh, And after 9-11, you know, you weren't very popular if you were a foreigner and you were questioning what was going on in America in response to 9-11, you know, especially the militarism. Um, and uh, uh, so, but you'd get together, and after we greeted each other, we hadn't seen each other for years. We'd sort of look, look at each other and say, "Wow, isn't this just like living in South Africa under apartheid?" You know, it's it's the you know the the raw reactions to being attacked, as whites felt they were under attack from the ANC, and um, and to see the politicians, you know, making the kind of you know. having the instinctive gut-level responses of apartheid politicians. It was a bit sad.
0: Well, I know that in 2004 you you wrote Rabble Rouser for Peace, a biography about my grandfather, but this interview is not about him. Um, But I wonder what the process and sort of the research is like when you're writing a biography on someone.
1: Well, I was lucky because uh, I had met him in 1976, and that was uh-huh. uh, your granddad had been based in Britain, although he most of his time he's been travelling around Africa, but your 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 grandmom and your parents were living in Britain, um, and he came back to South Africa to be the dean of Johannesburg. So I met him in 1976. So in the period from 76 through to 82, so for the first six years of, of a very active time uh, that he spent, uh, I had a lot of the documentation. And I knew him, I'd interviewed him dozens of times, uh, gone to lots of press courses. Uh, so I, you know, I wasn't in the, pl- in the position of a historian who's got to dig it all up from the archives. I had quite a lot of material. Uh, then I went, worked, uh, went off and worked for a journalist union for a couple of years and kind of didn't have a lot of contact, just a little bit of contact. Um, and, uh, but then I actually worked for him for 13 years beginning in 1986 through the end of apartheid (laughs) and so there you know I was a journalist now uh, uh, most people uh, most journalists will tell you that moving from journalism into public relations is kind of a step down and you only do it quite reluctantly when you have to make some money and journalism doesn't get paid enough but actually in my case, I didn't have to do that at all, you know, because people sort of see journalists who go into PR as spin doctors. Well, I, I know this interview isn't about your granddad, but I have to say this. Um, he didn't need a spin doctor.
0: I was going to say, are you going to tell us he needed one? No,
1: he didn't, because he, he didn't spin. He didn't spin. He told the truth as he saw it. Now, I mean, you know, he was, people find it hard to believe. But in those years in the apartheid years he was demonized he was demonized in the white community when i came to cape town to work for him uh, in the mid-80s an acquaintance of um, of my wife's family told us quite seriously that 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 we were absolutely wrong that in fact he was the devil incarnate you know he was a he was you know he was a communist red devil and i knew what he thought, and I knew what he said, and he's he's extraordinary. I've seen neocons, you know, American neoconservatives, review a collection of speeches, Uh, you know, and this is a collection I put together in 94, which covered 20 years of his ministry. And a neocon wrote a review of that book, which said about your granddad's philosophy and thought, the consistency of the thing is beautiful. And this is somebody who's sort of ideologically totally opposed to him. Of course, there was a measure of, 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 there's a measure of shared feeling, because your granddad believed uh, that your faith and your beliefs ought to affect your politics. And of course, so did the neocons. So, 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 so there's a measure of similarity there. But anyway, the, the point I'm making is that when I went to work for, for him, I knew that the image of him presented in South African media, which was dominated by white media. Wasn't him, and all I needed to do. So you know, there were white Anglicans who thought, "Oh, this white man's coming to you know be his press secretary, so now you know this white man's going to calm him down a bit and make him a bit more acceptable to whites." (laughs) That that wasn't my job. My job was to make sure that when he got into trouble, as he did every month, he got into trouble for the right reasons. Yeah,
0: good
1: trouble. Um, uh, uh, You know, good trouble. Yeah, John Lewis has phrased good trouble. In other words, it was for what he was saying and not for what people misinterpreting. So in the period that I was with him, my intense focus was on documenting and collecting material. So for those 13 years, which was the height of the struggle against apartheid, followed by the violence of the transition to democracy, followed by the years of the Truth Commission, for those 13 years, I had uh, collected an enormous amount of material. Then when I took two years off, you know, work and got in advance to write the book. The fun came when I then had to research uh, his life before he became sort of famous. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there were, there were files in Geneva, London and Johannesburg. And so he sort of built up a picture of his life in his student years in particular by finding records in three different archives in different parts of the world and triangulating them so that you built up a picture. And that was a lot of fun.
0: Oh, my goodness. I don't think I'll be writing a biography on anyone anytime soon. (laughs) Do you ever wonder what goes on behind the scenes of your favorite homegrown films and TV shows? Well, it's time to pop some popcorn, go behind the camera, and meet the people who are making it happen. I'm Mariska Fernandez, host of the Maple Popcorn Podcast. In this new series you will discover exclusive interviews with canadian icons and hear them talk about canadian flicks and even break the fifth wall to share set anecdotes this podcast is produced by the brand is female and powered by telefilm canada subscribe now on the podcast app of your choice and don't miss an episode stay in the know by visiting telefilm.ca see it all And, you know, I mean, speaking of, you know, apartheid in South Africa, and then the the violence as it ended, and then the TRC, I wonder in these sort of tough moments that the country has had, but, you know, we also have our own tough moments, what sort of has sustained you or what what keeps you going in life?
1: Hmm. That's a tough one. I mean, for me, the biggest, the times of biggest strain, you know, the 80s were a time of violence and a lot of confrontation. And you'd find yourself in scenes where, and obviously this was with your granddad, where um, the police had their fingers on the trigger, on their triggers in one hand, and you had angry young people with bricks and, and big stones, you know, which they were throwing at the police on the other. Yeah, and um, and you found yourself not voluntarily on my part <laughs> between the two, um, that actually wasn't as much of a strain, you know, because you you knew where right and wrong were, you knew on what side of the struggle you were, and things were clear cut. In the early 90s, when when there was violence within communities, say you know in communities around Johannesburg. Stoked by the forces of apartheid, you know the forces of apartheid were, were, you know, were setting one group of black South Africans against another group of black South Africans. I I found that really, I found that very difficult uh, uh, to handle because it's uh, one group of oppressed being manipulated by really evil, 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 you know, apartheid right-wing white forces um, to attack another one, and and to see that happening was i you know what what sustained me i don't know actually i mean i i um uh, when I got away after the t r c for a few years i i got some therapy later um but even then it changes you you know that kind you know exposure to violence changes everybody obviously and i mean mine wasn't nearly as bad as the people who lived in those communities so yeah it's it's um you know i i in a i'd like to say my faith did Mm-hmm. Um, but that sounds flippant, um, because it was a struggle.
0: Yeah, I mean it has to be a lot of things. It sort of has to be, It you know, every day looks different, so it could be faith one day and, and who knows what the next day.
1: And uh, after a trip away when you're exposed to it, coming home to family, you know. Now, I wasn't living in a community. I mean I used to have enormous admiration for priests because they were sent to pastor a community which was under violent attack you know they they didn't necessarily come from that community they've you know come from another community elsewhere but their job was to be a priest to be a shepherd of their people no matter how rough and how violent it got so I, so I was you know extraordinarily fortunate I mean you know I didn't live in that community we had our exposure to it, but Mm -hmm. you know, and then you could go home and you could be on the beach with your children. I mean that, that you know, and huge numbers of people didn't have that option. The vast majority didn't have that option. Yeah,
0: this this sort of guilt that comes with being able to like leave a a situation of oppression and go sort of take a break.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's hard, that's hard. I remember your granddad struggling when we were in the middle of one violent situation during the early nineties, and he'd gone to an area where the police were regularly coming and attacking young people, and they were around a post office in a place called, I think it was Seba King, and, um, and, and, you know, and he went there with all of his bishops. And as the police came in their armored vehicles, the bishops all in their bright red cassocks, you know, they spread out in a line to form a line between the young people and the, and, and the army and the police. Um, and it was magnificent to see, there was an Australian radio journalist there who wrote afterwards that he'd never seen such courage and such witness and sacrifice by the church anywhere and um, and he was very impressed by it. But, but the fact was that when they had to go back to their meeting, to their synod meeting, they had to leave the area and the young people were saying, no, 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 don't go, don't go, the police are going to attack us as soon as you go, you know, but you can't, you know, they couldn't stay there.
0: Yeah. And one question I have for you is what I know that you were the director of media relations and communications for the TRC. Hmm. What does the director of media relations and communications <laughs> for the TRC do? Like what is what does that role entail?
1: Um overall the job was ensuring that the media had access to the to, okay. to hearings and to information from the commission. So the South african truth commission was was unique for its time in that before then uh, the truth commissions, which had been set up principally in Latin america uh, had 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 not been they had not operated publicly. you know they tended to be and this is probably oversimplifying it, but they tended to be bodies of sort of scholars and researchers mm-hmm. who would collect all the research, who'd collect all the information and issue a report and the and and the report which appeared afterwards about what had gone on in El Salvador or a place like that um, uh, was what made the news. In our case, um, the NGO community had lobbied Parliament because the Truth Commission was set up by Parliament once the ANC had taken taken uh, taken power, and the NGO community lobbied Parliament to ensure that the hearings of the Truth Commission would be public. Um, so it was a matter of being the liaison to ensure that the journalists could have their access to arrange for outside broadcast vehicles from the from the national broadcaster to be at hearings uh, to liaise between you know the commission officials and the and the outside broadcasters and then to make sure during hearings that the media had access to documents which which were being you know which were being referred to. Um, and, and then issued press releases about important developments from meetings and, and and things like that
0: And did you know did that role sort of teach you anything about yourself or South Africa or humanity that you think is important? I mean you know there there was a lot that was yeah. that was said there and it was heavy for people.
1: Yeah you know in my case, if you talk about it being heavy, uh, I had already, Gone through the experience of the early 90s, you know, being exposed at a secondary level, you know, maybe to violence. So it was coming to a day later to where people had been massacred, children had been massacred the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly it was interesting for the interpreters of the hearings, because there was simultaneous interpretation going on. You know, interpreters for maybe half a dozen languages would sit in little interpreters' boxes at the back of a hearing and, and through headsets they'd provide interpretation. Yeah. So as an interpreter, or as a radio journalist these these are the two people you know affected a lot as well as commissioners listening uh, as an interpreter in particular in the morning you might be interpreting uh, the widow of somebody who'd been murdered or somebody who had been tortured
0: yeah
1: and they were interpreting in the first person because they had to be speaking that you know they were that person speaking in a language into which they interpreted. so uh, you know they did this to me. You know they 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 gave me electric shocks, and the consequence of electric shocks was this, and and maybe the witness would start crying. Now the interpreter didn't start crying, but some of them nearly did. Then in the afternoon, you might be hearing from the policeman who'd done the torture, and you're saying, well, I took a pair of tongs or whatever, and I put them on him, and I sent an electric shock through the witness. So. They were taking on the interpreters were taking on the first person stories of both victims and perpetrators of human rights violations, um, and it really affected them. Actually, there was a there was an American uh, theatre and film producer who, um, who, who 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 developed a play, who developed a whole series of events, which he took to many conflict areas of the world, based on the experiences of the. Or the interpreters.
0: I can't imagine
1: that. -hmm. And uh, you know, so to answer your question, I wasn't as affected, you know, as those people were, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have to listen to every word that was being said. I sort of kept a, you know, I, I if I was at a hearing, and mostly there were media liaison officers who who were accountable to me were at hearings but even then whether I or they were there, um, uh, you know, we mainly were just sort of keeping an eye over things and making sure journalists had what they needed to do their jobs.
0: Yeah. So then, you know, speaking of the TRC, what do you think of where South Africa is now?
1: You know, I, I'm i not a great proponent of the TRC simply because I, you know, I, was a, I was a court reporter who reported on the trials of political prisoners in in Pretoria in the early 1970s when the ANC was banned and when Nelson Mandela was in prison. And so for, because of journalism, I was exposed to the kinds of things that had happened in the country. And in an ideal situation, you would have had justice and you would have had people going to jail. Yeah. Um, but the balance of power in the country when Nelson Mandela and his and the other leaders were, were negotiating a settlement was such that the liberation movement did not have the military power, to, f- unlike in Germany, where the Germans, where the Nazis had been defeated after World War Two, and they could lay down, they could hold Nuremberg tribunals. Um, we didn't have that situation here. The military power was actually still largely in the hands of the apartheid state, and the liberation movements, the ANC, didn't have the military power to to enforce trials.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The and then on the other side. The reason the apartheid government was forced to negotiate is that, particularly because of things like sanctions, um, they were losing control. And it wasn't as if the ANC was going to march into Pretoria and take over the government with their with their military forces, but as a matter of the centre was falling apart. The, the, you know, they they the, the country was going downhill economically. Uh, uh uh on the overseas. world
0: stage yeah, yeah. and
1: and uh, you know they were losing their capacity to lend, to to borrow money they were getting themselves into huge debt um and uh, you know they were, and they were losing control and uh, so it was they may have had military power but they didn't have legitimacy you know mm-hmm. the people wouldn't listen to them because 80% of south africans are black south africans and they were in a say they were sick of apartheid and although they didn't have the military power to overthrow it, they certainly had the power if they wanted to stay away on a day that wasn't a public holiday like June 16, which is the when they celebrate the Soweto Youth Uprising of 1976, the Youth Rebellion, well, the country would come to a stop. You know, And I mean, black people couldn't afford to have a strike lasting months because they had to feed their families. But you know, they, so you had legitimacy on the side of the liberation movement. And military power on the side of the government, so they, you know, they have to come to some kind of agreement to get themselves over this hump, where they would have a new democratic government. And the the military, the pothead military, said to to Nelson Mandela, oh, you know, well, if you're going to put us all on trial, we're going to fight you, you know, we we you know, and you know, the young people today in South Africa who say, no, you know, Mandela sold us out, you know, he didn't, you know. He should have defeated apartheid properly, because we, you know, we may have had political liberation in South Africa, but we haven't had economic liberation. You know, the vast majority of the wealth is still in the hands of whites. Right. So the young people today who said Mandela sold us out, well, you know, uh, my response to that, and I don't, you know, I, I I don't really respond, but my response to that would be, I'm not sure you would have been alive to to criticize Mandela. You you, you know, because you want to look at Syria, six hundred thousand people dead. You know, did you, you, know, you think Mandela would have been better taking us into a war where we might have lost half a million people? Mm-hmm. You know, and because of all of that, the TRC, uh, you know, the, the deal was now, in most TRCs up until then, there had been blanket amnesties. You've got a Chile with uh, Pinochet or a place like that. Uh, now, he, they were in a similar situation when they you know, went out of their military dictatorship. But there, there was blanket amnesty. For, for everybody uh, on, the, on the military side um, and, and they got away with, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's what they got away with and they, they said, okay, we'll give up power but you give us amnesty, we, you're not going to put us on trial. Um, and here there was this middle-of-the-road compromise which was unique in the world at the time and hasn't, I don't think it's been followed very often since because it's so controversial no. and that was, okay, you can have amnesty, uh, uh, in other words, you won't get prosecuted if you come and tell us what you've done.
0: The whole truth, yeah.
1: The whole truth. It was amnesty in exchange for the truth. So, at a moral level, at an ethical level, especially as a white South African, as a beneficiary of apartheid, I I can't defend that morally, you know. Um, uh, It's not for me to judge that. I mean, you must be part of the oppressed to to really have a valid opinion on that. However, there is one thing, uh, one of our Constitutional Court judges served as the chief war crimes prosecutor in Yugoslavia. And he told me, um, I mean basically his thesis, and I'm oversimplifying it a bit, was, at least in our process, we got some truth out. Because there was an onus, if you wanted to get amnesty you had to come and tell the truth. and it produced probably a lot more truth. It didn't produce justice. It wasn't about justice because you were getting away with murder, you were getting amnesty. So the deal was you'd get away with murder, but in exchange for the truth. And although often they lied or they, you know, they try to sort of uh, uh, whitewash how, they, you know, how badly they had tortured and killed people. Uh, but broadly, you got, you, know, you got 20,000 victims. Who were people who were declared victims and who got very limited reparations? That was a scandal that the government didn't give them enough. But uh, and and whereas we had one big trial here, and you know it's it's difficult to prove your case when you put policemen on trial who are torturers, um, and the victims dead. Yeah. So where are your witnesses? You know, how do you prove beyond reasonable doubt? Because we have the same standard of proof as most justice systems in a criminal trial. To get, you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. Well, when they'd killed, you know, their victim, how are you going to prove beyond reasonable doubt that they had, you know, killed the person? So, you know, this this judge's conclusion was that, you know, we we we, um, if we tried to have trials like Nuremberg, there would have been a lot of acquittals and and white south africans would have said no look you know these people all acquitted you know they they you know all you know 80% of them were acquitted
0: yeah it would, it, it wasn't that bad if all of these people were yeah
1: were, were acquitted and and of course also um, you wouldn't have been able to have I, i'm just we didn't have enough prosecutors to prosecute everybody you know if you think of 20,000 victims um, and thousands and thousands of amnesty applicants you know you you um, You know, you would have taken, I don't know, 100 years to investigate the cases. I mean, we didn't have enough police or prosecutors to go after everybody. So we probably got more truth out of it than we would have had. That's, you know, it's a very, it's a very uh, pragmatic, uh, you know, rationalization of the process. I, I can't defend it on sort of moral grounds. It's just, as a matter of, you know, practical politics, we probably got more truth out of it than we would have if we'd gone for trials.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, we also like to think that we saved more lives after the fact because there wasn't this then, as you said, you know, that they had the military power. So, yeah. And, you know, thinking of all that you have reported on and, and seen and experienced, what is your greatest fear for humanity?
1: Some years ago, a Canadian historian wrote a book about World War One and the beginning of World War One and it was actually quite a shocking account of how they stumbled into world war 1 um they really you know i, I it was a, a build up of armaments was part of it mm-hmm. um but it was just in the diplomacy and in the various um uh, agreements between countries you know the the um oh the treaties uh, and
0: alliances the, the, the
1: treaties and alliances between the countries Once something, you know, the assassination of somebody here suddenly triggered a whole lot of events, you know, which sees millions of people getting killed. And that's frankly what frightened me about the last four years in the United States so much, Mm -hmm. you know, is that is that, I mean, and, and, you know, stupid decisions, decisions taken by people without enough consideration of the facts of what they were doing. so i guess that's that's at an international level that's a worrying thing in south africa it's the enormous disparity uh, economic disparity between black and white um, you know it's not it's not sustainable it's not sustainable something you know we have to act more radically to 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 um it's not going to it's not going to happen as ronald reagan used to say you know by trickle down economics not in south africa
0: Um, Yeah, I don't believe uh, the things that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher used to say about economics, (laughs) so we don't even need to give them a platform here. (laughs) (laughs) And then what would you say about what is your greatest hope for humanity?
1: Actually, that the, the concept of an Ubuntu philosophy, which you have written so well about, would take hold and spread, um, there, was a, there was a South African journalist called Alistair Sparks. He was mm-hmm. like South Africa's Bob Woodward. He also did a book on your granddad. And as he got to see his thinking and the integrated nature of, of it, you know, your granddad used to say, sorry about talking about your granddad again, but <laughs> that's been half of my life, so <laughs> I haven't got too many other <laughs> reference points. But, uh, you know, he used to say, Oh, you Westerners are good at at pulling things apart, at analysing and dissecting stuff, but you're not so good at putting them together. And then he used to say that you you know you you too much uh, affected by Hellenic thinking, you know, but you know, the Greeks, where you separate the material and the spiritual mm-hmm. at all sorts of levels, you know, at, in people's relationships with one another, you know, the well, it's not foreign to Westerners, who as John Donne said, you know. Um, Uh, no man uh, is an island no man is an island exactly and I've seen you know the theologian who was killed by Hitler uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer I've seen what he stood for described as Ubuntu so it's not necessarily only an African thing but anyway Alistair in this book developed he he took Samuel Huntington's idea of a clash of civilizations you know which was popular 20-30 years ago and compared that to your granddad's thinking whereas one is one is seeing people as, I don't know, the Christian West against you know, the Islamic Middle East, or there's a clash of civilizations. And the other is looking for the common humanity of all people. And although it isn't exclusive to Africa, I suspect, um, that's what Africa has to offer to the world, actually. Um, that idea of uh, my welfare depends on your welfare.
0: Absolutely. You know,
1: if you hurt me, you need to put things right with me uh uh you know if we if we to survive together mm-hmm. and um and uh, I can't be happy if you're not happy and you know and that, that cuts both ways and so that that would be my hope
0: yeah i like that hope well thank you john allen so much for coming on the everyday ubuntu podcast
1: well thank you mungi it's been great fun and uh, as you, as you hear some some people say oh you know this guy's a little bit too much of an african because he talks too much and you know, at too much length. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, anyway. it was wonderful. So um, I, I can be a bit long-winded, but I've I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at Mungi on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.